Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. We praise Thee, O God, for the Son of Thy love. Let's stand as we sing. Oh, Jesus, who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, by the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, by the glory. Revive us again. Amen. It is true. Brother Barry said a minute ago that we... We can get accustomed to having such excellence and, and uh, talent behind us. And sometimes we, uh, we forget about that. But here comes one of them now, Miss Linda Williams. No, I just totally just put you on the spot. And yeah, we do. We have such a wonderful gift. And, and Miss Shirley will come around here in just a second. But she and, uh, and, and just Brother Barry, of course, um, the singers, it's just the musicians. It's all just such a, a wonderful treat every, every time we can get together and worship together. So... Um, Let us continue in the Word this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is where we're going to be at today. As hopefully you have noticed, grace is the theme that we're going to be talking about. We have been talking about already through the worship, uh, through the music anyway. And we're going to continue that theme through the worship of the Word. Paul, in his epistle to the Ephesians, arguably gives to us one of the greatest uh, expositions, one of the greatest prose on grace. And, uh, and there's, some, there's some verses in there that are um, very memorable, and we, we memorize them, and, and we, we go to them in times of, of need. And, um, and so we're going to read a couple of those today um, from our brother Paul uh, to, his, to the uh, Christians that were living in Ephesus. Um, and I hope to exhort this word today uh, as a means of just understanding and clarity and appreciation for what God has done for us through his amazing grace. So let's stand together. Let's read God's word. Uh, I know some of you haven't even sat down hardly, and here we are standing once again. But it's the word of God, and we want to honor it. So let's read together chapter 2, verse 1. And he, and you rather, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the excellent riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for this wonderful word. Father, as this bread of life has now been broken, may it now nourish our souls. May it glorify you. And Father, that maybe we can worship together around it. We pray this in Jesus' name. And amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So grace is the theme this morning from the word of God. And, and I think sometimes as we do with our music, we, we can sometimes fail to appreciate the fullness of something. Grace sin tends to be one of those things as well. Now for me, and I'll say this in a personal note, grace is probably the greatest singular element to Christianity than any other element of the Christian faith. For me, if I could summarize and, and just maybe draw out one word about the faith in Christ and, and, and living in faith and those kinds of things, I would pull out the word grace. Because the grace of God is evident every single day in my life as an imperfect person, as a flawed being, as in my own limited, limited capacities and my own limitations, I must have God's grace in order to be functional whatsoever. And so a definition for us is, is important. It's, it's, it almost predicates the, the, the understanding of our text today. Because without a, a proper understanding of what grace is, then we may not fully understand what Paul is saying. Now, biblical grace, and I'm just going to isolate biblical grace this morning because there's lots of different applications of the word grace. But biblical grace can be defined as unmerited favor from God that is useful for regeneration, right? There's a big word, and sanctification. There's another big word. Now, what does that mean? Because I don't want that to be going over your heads at 400 miles an hour. Grace is the means by which God, first of all, saves us, okay? And we're going to get into the outline here in just a minute, but this, this definition is important. Regeneration is the, is, the, is the concept that you were once dead and now you're alive, all right? Regeneration is the, the concept of being born again, as Jesus talked to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3. Grace is the catalyst. Grace is the means by which God made that possible. It's the way that, that, that God is able to overlook a, a perfect holy being was able to overlook your sin to save you. Because for all practical purposes, God is so holy, he can't entertain presence of sin whatsoever. And so therefore, we are hopeless without grace. Because it's the grace of God that allows God to look past our sin. One preacher put it like this, grace is the gaze of a loving God upon a pitiful soul. That's a beautiful sentence. That's a beautiful concept as, as we think about regeneration. The second thing that grace is good for is for sanctification. So if the grace of God is sufficient to save you, for by grace you have been saved, then what else is it good for in the life of the believer? Well, it's, it's, the, it's good for your sanctification. It's good to make you more like Christ. That's sanctification. Sanctification is the process of partnering with the Holy Spirit to, to, to weed out those bad things about you and, and replace them with the righteousness of Christ. Or I could throw out a whole lot of other theological terms, but at the end of it all is the fact that grace of, the grace of God makes it possible to know God 
It makes it possible for us to love God and love others. It makes it possible for us to serve God in ministry. Grace is needful for us to understand scripture. And it's needful for us to become more like Jesus. For without grace, our lives would not be worth anything to ourselves. We would not be able to, if you will, we would not be able to do the work that God has called us to do. And again, for me personally, I would not, in my wildest imagination, dream that I would ever be in a pulpit declaring the word of God to other people. I would have said, no way, you've got the wrong person. There's no way that I can do that. And and as God told Paul, as Paul was appealing to the, the thorn in his flesh, God looked at Paul and said, my grace is sufficient for you. Because in your weakness, I am made strong. Right? And, and, and that, 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 that back and forth with grace is what allows us, equips an imperfect person to do perfect work. And that's a beautiful sentence too. The grace of God allows you and I as imperfect people to be called, equipped to do perfect work. Uh, oftentimes in, in, our, in our ministry, we forget this. Uh, it, whether it's serving food uh, uh, to, to our community folks or, or whether it's preaching the word or standing in Sunday school or leading in worship or through the music, whatever the case, it's the grace of God that makes it possible. Because left to our own devices, we're, we're not good enough. Right? We, we, whatever, clever, uh, whatever clever excuse you want to throw out there, I'm not smart enough, I'm not, I'm not wise enough, I'm not, I'm not, my voice isn't good enough, I'm this and that and the other, right? Because we all have excuses. And at the end of all of those excuses, God says, my grace is sufficient for you, right? And so there is a a proper beginning place by which we can look at the book of Ephesians. Now, I've broken in your bulletin. I've broken this down into three parts. Before God, who we used to be. But God, and that, by the way, my Bible, I, I went ahead and took the liberty of circling that but God because that, those, that two word phrase is the intersection between who we used to be and who God has made us to be. And that's the third part. The, the, the but God in the middle of all that is the, the moment that grace is injected into who we once were. And we're going to flesh all this out here in just a second. But in your bulletin, you can see those three outlines or those three bullets outlined for you. And, 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 and Paul's understanding of what this means for us. The first thing about grace, before grace, who we used to be, is that all of us, at one time or another, were dead in trespass and in sin. Now, we hear that phrase in Christianity, what does it mean? Well, at one time or another in our lives, we were cut off from God. We were alienated. We were, we were estranged. We were, we were on our own, uh, apart from the saving knowledge of Jesus. We were all dead in that separation. Why? Well, because we all possess a nature that was given to us at birth that, was, that goes all the way back to our ancestor, Adam. And we possess this thing called original sin. We have this, 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 this proclivity in our, in our unique makeup as, as human beings from the sin of Adam. We have this proclivity to indulge in the sin nature. Because there is no life whatsoever in the flesh. 
Thus, death is the inevitability to which we are all assured. In fact, without sounding too oppressive to each one of us this morning, the very moment you took your first breath on this earth, you began a process of dying. And that sounds really... It's true, though. Right? Because all of our bodies, and we'll go ahead and throw in minds are in a constant state of decay and, 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 and demise. We are in this, in this fight, if you will, to slow down the dying process that started when you came out of your mother's womb and cried for the first time. That is the human condition. We can't escape it. We, can't, we, we can fight against it, but, but we cannot escape it. It's our nature. And along with this nature becomes the proclivity to sin. We don't, as people, have to be taught how to sin, do we? We all know how to sin. Go to the nursery and watch children play. And you'll see the sin nature on display. Bless their little bodies and souls. We have to be taught, actually, how to do good or be good or be courteous or be mannerly. We, we have to be taught how to be unselfish or unsinful. We have to be taught better behaviors and better ways of thinking by those around us. We don't have to be taught how to sin. It's in our nature. Now, one of the more beautiful components to this, and it's not all bad news, but there is a beautiful element to it in that as humans, we are, there, there is one good thing about us, and that's that we are all born with the image of our creator hardwired into us, right? We have this beautiful, this beautiful picture that, that because we were born in our humanity as humans, we thus bear the image of God. That's why all humans have the capacity to be benevolent or compassionate or, or caring or kind or thoughtful or personal because God is all of those things. And as image bearers of God, we have this, this image imprinted on us. Thus, we can be virtuous. But our flesh is fallen. That's Paul's first point. In which you once walked dead in, in trespasses and sins, verse 1. We cannot escape it. The second point that he makes here is that we once walked according to the ways of the world. This is where he goes in verse 2. In which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. One of the fascinating things about our sin nature is that it enjoys the fellowship of other sinners. I don't mean this fascination in a good way. I mean it in a bad way. Our sinful desire, our sinful flesh desires to walk in ways that others walk. In fact, we like to walk in ways that are very satisfying, indulgent, if you will. We like to walk in the paths of least resistance. We like to walk in ways that are accepted by the world. Right? Nobody, nobody likes to be alienated or cast away or, 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 or disassociated from the world. And so we do things, we say things, we believe in ways that are attractive to others, especially as it pertains to the sin nature. We do this because misery loves company. Let me just use the cliche there. In sin, those who are sinful, in their misery, they love the company of others who are also miserable. 
And that's why humanity is in a constant state of approval or affirmation or acceptance. Because the one thing that we all share is that we're estranged from God. And that singular separation from God, as it pertains to all of humanity, makes humans the most woeful type of person, most miserable and wretched. And so to make ourselves feel better about our human condition, we seek the approval from the world. Thus, we walk in its ways, as Paul would say. Right? What are the ways of the world? Let's entertain it. What are these ways? Well, you have selfishness. You have pride. You have the seeking of pleasure. You have the indulging in sin. And ultimately, you have death. Those are the ways of the world. To contrast that with the faith, the Christian faith, we can say that the kingdom of God, Christians are to walk in humility or selflessness or righteousness and life. Jesus said, I came to give you life to give it more abundantly. That is the contrast between those who are lost and dead in sin and those who are alive in Christ. And as we flesh out all of those different things and we walk according to our world, we get to this third point. We used to care only about ourselves. Verse 3, among whom also we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. Speaking of sinners this morning, it is the seeking of approval from the world. The lost and the lonely person who is dead in sin still has to come home to themselves every single day. That is where the misery is found in isolation from God. Because in our own capacities, we are wretched. We are lonely. We are isolated. We are self-rejected. Everyone knows, and I, I hear this all the time from, 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 from sinner and saint alike. Everyone on earth knows that we are created for more, that we are all created to do something. But for some reason, we fail to achieve or find it. So we seek self-satisfaction to appease our consciences. We, see, we search for meaning. We search for purpose. We search for something greater than ourselves, while at the same time loathing our inability to save ourselves from our own misery. So people indulge in things that don't bring happiness. They, they think that they bring happiness, yet they still feel empty of joy. They pursue things that perish with the using, only to find themselves in the same previous condition that they themselves were, were already in. Many live in this constant state of psychological warfare. And I like how Paul, he doesn't just speak to the flesh in verse 3, he speaks to the mind as well. Because what I have experienced in my ministry over the, over the years, both in the ministry of, of pastoring and as a chaplain, what I have found is that most people are in this constant state of psychological warfare. They project their misery onto others. They, re- they repress their true feelings about themselves, and they suppress the, the, the truth about what they're really looking for, and that's God. So in their misery, they try to make others miserable. They, they, they project, right? And, they, and they, they repress 
their true feelings about themselves, and they suppress the truth about what they're really looking for, and that's God. And they seek, to, they, they seek to fill this void with stuff and things that never satisfy. They overindulge in things that are bad for them. They look for answers in places only to leave disappointed. And they surround themselves with others who sound like them, who look like them, and behave like them so that they don't feel so alone in their searching. They find little to no meaning in the things of this world, yet still pursue them as if their very life depended on it. This is what Paul means when he speaks about only caring for ourselves. It goes way beyond only trying to satisfy ourselves or thinking about ourselves all the time. It actually speaks to a life apart from Christ. And a very large majority of the world finds itself in this situation this morning as we read the, the, the words of our brother Paul. Now, if that were the end, we would be without hope. But Paul injects those two words that I mentioned earlier that absolutely shatters everything. And we're by the nature of children of wrath, and, and we're by nature the children of wrath, just as the others. And then verse 4 comes, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, stepped in and saved us from our situation. Just like that. Everything changed in Paul's exhortation to the Ephesians. God shatters the effects of sin. He chases the darkness away in two words. Because he is rich in mercy. But God comes into this situation for humanity and changes everything. For the first time, our human condition doesn't seem so bad. There's a little bit of hope. There's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, none of us can escape our nature. The very wrath of God rests upon us for that reason. But as God's mercy steps in and offers us a way out, he provides us a little respite from our sinful condition, a forbearance, if you will, if I can use a word that we would probably understand. Yes, God's mercy, yeah, God looks at us and he says, yeah, you know what, you're pretty sinful and I don't like it. And I understand that you can't do anything about your own situation to save you from it, but I love you so much that I'm overwilling to look your sin if you'll turn to me in repentance. And as that happens... God who is rich in mercy, Paul says. Listen to that. He says, God who is rich in mercy. He doesn't just say that God has mercy or is going to give us mercy. He says God is rich in it. He has an abundance of it to give to us, even in our deepest, darkest sins. So not only is God willing to overlook sin, this means that no sin is too black. That none of us are too bad. That no soul is too far gone. That no situation is unforgivable. That in the riches of God's mercy, there's hope. There are history. History is littered with stories of people who were able to find this amazing grace. Just in a brief search. Refreshing my own mind, I've reminded, I was reminded of people like Jeffrey Dahmer. Everybody remembers Jeffrey Dahmer, don't they? Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer, cannibal, 
etc. What many don't know about Jeffrey Dahmer is that before he died in prison, he made a profession of faith in Christ, confessed that to a priest, and for all practical purposes, according to the teachings of Scripture, is in heaven with Christ today. How could God overlook such a horrible person for doing such horrible things? By grace. That's how it happened. I got to thinking about Michael Sonny Franzese, former New York City mob boss, responsible for killing an untold amount of people, found grace at the end of his life. Former leader of the Ku Klux Klan, Johnny Lee Clary, found forgiveness for his atrocities. C.S. Lewis, former atheist turned Christian, who became one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. Can't forget about as the book of Ephesians is written by a man who was once a killer of Christians, Paul. Right? And as we sang Amazing Grace earlier, let's not forget about John Newton. Everybody knows Amazing Grace, but many of us may not know that its author, the famed author of Amazing Grace, was once a captain of a ship that brought enslaved Africans across the Atlantic Ocean for auction. God intervened in his life as he was out on the the ocean, storm blew up, and John Newton heard the words, but God. And he fell on his face, and he surrendered his life to Christ, and he became one of the most boldest abolitionists of the movement. These lives testify to the riches of God's mercy. And without our own but God, it could be you too. And that's the beauty of it all. When we mention people like Adolf Hitler or Mao or, or Jeffrey Dahmer, it doesn't matter. We can inject our names in there because our sin was just giving us as much hope as theirs was. Maybe you weren't a serial killer. It doesn't matter. Apart from the grace of God, you were still a sinner bound for the same destruction. But God what? But God who is great in love. Rich in mercy because of the great love with, he, which, with which he loved us. You see, in the, it's, the, it's the love of God that causes him to act on, beho- on behalf of those who don't deserve it. It's his love that prompts him to move to begin with. In fact, this love by which he loves us is the same love that procured salvation for those once depraved souls that I just mentioned. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's the same mingling of God's grace and love that keeps us from being included in that list. You see, the point is this morning is that it's apart from the grace of God, there's no telling where we could be, who we could be. I know who I once was. As I step back just a second and appreciate this, I know who I used to be. I know who I still am. And apart from the grace of God present in my life, I'm hopelessly lost in that identity. But as God has called me to salvation, has called me to sanctification, I now sit at his feet and worship him. 
See, it's only by the grace of God that a crazed man that was breaking chains in the city of Gadarenes was able to sit at the feet of Christ like a child. You remember that story? Demon-possessed man comes running. They chained the man up. He'd break the chains. He would cut himself. He'd scream out in the middle of the night. He drove everybody crazy. Jesus shows up. The Gadarene man runs up to him, falls at his feet. Jesus exercises him. And then the next moment, we see the man literally sitting at the feet of Christ like a baby because of the, God, because of the grace of God. It's by the grace of God that Mary was able to be exercised of her demons and spend the rest of her life worshiping Christ. And it's only by the grace of God, I'm sure, that Peter was able to, or rather Paul was able to write the words that he wrote to us today. Becoming an apostle of the Gentiles as he previously was a Christian killer. You see, this love is too good for us to deserve. It's too powerful for us to resist, and it's too deep for us to understand. But this love is the only thing that we can have to approach the Son of God. It's only through the offering of Christ on the cross that we can actually ascertain what's even taking place. Apart from that, we're left to our own devices. And then we get to this third point. God is gracious despite our sin. See, all of this stuff about grace and love, it stands eternally declared. And hear me this morning. All of the grace of God that's extended to mankind, it stands because God has declared it to be so. Even despite our sin. I would argue this morning that it's in the worst of sin that God's grace is most glorified. It's in the blackest moments of the human condition where the grace of God is most exalted. Amen? And when we understand and we appreciate that, we can begin to understand the exchange that God gives to us through salvation. Because what do we we possibly give to a God that would equal what he has given to us through his grace? What offering is sufficient What gift is enough that would express to him our appreciation? A lifetime of servitude. A life of full devotion. A life of full acceptance that the grace of God was enough for you and that it compels you on despite who you are. This is a beautiful, and I think this needs, to be re, this needs to be a message that the church needs to resurrect for our world today. That despite who we think we are, despite what we know to be true about ourselves, that the grace of God is still sufficient to save us. It's still sufficient, it's still enough for God to, to take us out of those situations, out of that brokenness and depravity, And give us a standing with Christ. Because he's willing. He's willing to take our broken parts. He's willing to take us and make us whole. He's willing to take our sin and give us his righteousness. He's willing to take our depravity and give us peace. And in trying to understand this, though it may make no sense whatsoever, it it really honestly sounds like an eternal business deal gone bad. 
but it's God's plan. That's why it's so beautiful. Because it works in each one of our lives so that we can be the people that God placed, God wants us to be. And that's my third point. After grace, who we are in Christ. If you're saved this morning, if you're a believer and you have confessed Christ and you have followed him into the baptismal waters and you have become a disciple of his, this is you. Notice all of the past tense verbs that he uses here, by the way. These are all past tense verbs that are being applied. Verse 5, even when you were dead in trespasses, you have now made alive together in Christ. So where we were once dead, now we are alive in Jesus. And see, this is where the transaction is made. We give God our broken parts. He gives us his righteousness. And we are made alive for the first time in the spirit of God. Where we were once dead, our minds, our wills, our behaviors, and our souls are now brought into the light and given eternal life in Christ. And this, this transaction, it causes reformation. It causes things to change. It causes revival to break out in the lives that were once broken. And it causes hope to spring forth where all that existed previous was death. What could we say to a God who has been so good to us? Thank you, Lord, for looking past my sin. Thank you for continuing to do that. As I am not perfect in my flesh, I'm perfect in Christ. So the grace of God is still sufficient. Thank you for looking past my sin and seeing my potential. That's a beautiful picture when you think about it. When you think about how it affects you in your ministration to Christ. God sees past who you once were and all of your sin, all that kind of thing. And he sees what you're capable of in him. And he perfects that. And the patience that's involved in that on his behalf is beyond me. I'm not even patient with myself. So I can't imagine how patient he is with me. As we work this thing called salvation out. What a beautiful picture indeed. The second thing is that where we were once cast down. Christ raised us up. Verse 6. And raised us up together. And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's, let me summarize this. Through the grace of God. The Lord Jesus himself has pulled a chair up to the table in heaven around the, around the supper table and it's reserved just for you. That's grace. That's the ability to, for God to say, you know what? I haven't just saved you or sanctified you. I have exalted you with Christ. I've given you the same place around the same table as him. And that's why this Christian mind is to dwell on the things above and not on the things below. It's why the Christian eyes are to be uplifted to the heavens and not cast down to the earth. It's why the Christian hope is to be on Christ and not earthly ministrations. It's why the Christian soul can soar with the promises of God. Because our seat is among the righteous. For it is beside Christ's in heaven. And one day, once death has taken our mortal bodies, Christ will raise them up immortal, incorruptible, so that we too can dwell with God forever in a glorified state of 
worship and love. This is the promise of Christ. And then lastly, where we were once degenerate, Christ regenerated us. And nobody likes to use that word, degenerate. That was one of those words we used when I was little. We used to call each other, degenerate. Nobody likes to be called that. But in sin, that's what we are. Everything we do dies. Everything we say is death. Everything we touch comes up ugly. But in Christ, verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. Hear me, First Baptist Church. You are not a product of your own musings, your own intentions or best desires. You are the created image craftsmanship of Christ that he has made for good works. Amen? He has not only done us for good works, but that he has done all of this that we should walk in a new way. This is the invitation of grace. This is where the the rubber meets the road for us. Even in this own service, as this comes to a close, and we close with this understanding, this hearing of this response is a a requirement. There's a requisite here. There's nothing we can do other than just reject it or, or, or accept it for what it is. To sit by and idly do nothing is to reject it. But the beauty of it is, is that God did all of this so that you could bear fruit for him. He did all of this so that your life could be a living, breathing testimony to his goodness. For you are his workmanship. You are a result of his work in your life. Whether it's salvation or sanctification, all that God has made you is designed to testify to his glory. By the grace of God, you are regenerate to good works so that you might walk in the light as he is in the light. Amen? That's the invitation. What do we do with that now? Accept it? Reject it? Embrace it? If you're a Christian this morning and you have the grace of God as evident in your life, then your life is now a worship experience. Everything comes back to the grace of God. Thank him for the work that he's done and is continuing to do in your life. Partner with the Spirit of God to do good works. Let's pray together as we close this invitation. Father, thank you this morning as we have gotten to enjoy just a small portion of your word. Father, it is full. It is, it is, it is, uh, it is a mouthful for us this morning in our souls to, to bite off and to digest. But Father, as it's made clear to us, clear to us this morning that yet your grace is the intersection of all of these things that... Through grace, we can be called the sons and daughters of God, born again unto new life, both physical and spiritual. Father, given us standing before you as son or daughter. And Father, that in sanctification, your grace is sufficient to save us and to continue us onward into good works. 
Father, what a great privilege. What a great reminder this morning for the Christian who may be struggling in their faith. That your grace is sufficient for them. To keep serving you, to keep striving with you, to keep, to keep your eyes, their eyes up on you so that you may be glorified in their lives. Father, help us to understand this, this morning that in our weaknesses, you are made strong. For it is in them that your grace is most evident. Father, we thank you for this word this morning. And as we bring it to a close now, the reading of it anyway, and move into this time of acceptance. Father, may you be glorified by every decision that's made this morning in this sanctuary. And in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Revive us again. Fill each heart with thy love. May he so be.